Aloha. This is Catherine Cruz. It is Tuesday, October 24th. Mahalo for joining us here on The Conversation, Hawaii Talks. Today, we turn our attention to Oahu's cases of little fire ants. The stinging pests were first found in Hawaii nearly 25 years ago. We'll learn where the newest colonies have been found. We learn more about how the Maui wildfires are impacting other initiatives within the Department of Education as we continue our conversation with Deputy Superintendent Kurt Okikuro. And Hawaii Congressman Ed Case is featured in this week's StoryCorps Military Voices Initiative Story. is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. In recent months, little fire ants have been found in neighborhoods in Maunawili and Kaneohe, where other infestations have been reported before. The Oahu Invasive Species Committee is actively working on some 36 cases of the ants that deliver a powerful sting. They nest in trees as well as the ground and can make super colonies. They've been dubbed as one of the most destructive pests in the world. We heard yesterday how Big Island surfers reported being stung in the ocean as colonies of ants can be washed downstream and into the sea as they use their bodies to form rafts to relocate to protect their queen, part of their defense to survive. Originally from South America, these fire ants were first reported in Pune 24 years ago and are now found in just about every district on the Big Island. Here's Christy Martin, who gave us a bird's eye view of the little fire ant situation on Oahu with the newest cases in areas where infestations had not been previously found, uh, like a nursery in Waihole and on some 13 properties in Ka'elipulu on the windward side. Ants have been around for hundreds of millions of years, and they've developed strategies to be able to survive. And so that would be one of them. You know, they can definitely survive when their their homes are flooded, their colonies, and they raft together to protect the queen. The queen is the most important member of that colony. And so the ants, you know, just basically link legs and form a flotation raft and surround the queen. And in this little fire ant case, it's multiple queens. They surround them to protect the queen so that when the water recedes or when they reach high ground, they can then transfer the queen to a new safe location. Okay, so if this raft then gets swept downstream, it continues on into the ocean. And in some cases, then people are seeing it if they're using the water, you know, to swim in or to surf in. Yeah, as is the case on Hawaii Island, where, you know, the main surf spot around Hilo, that forest right above it is infested with little fire ants. How long have we been hearing these cases? On Hawaii Island, at least for the past 15 years or so. Yeah, but but I guess maybe it's the consciousness, right, of all of us statewide that it can survive for a time in the ocean. Absolutely, yeah. What kind of a snapshot can you give us for Oahu? Because we're so urban, you know, a lot of our detections are in neighborhoods, so one, two, three households. And 
right now for the sites that we have that are active, and let me explain what active is. That means that little fire ants have been detected and confirmed. Um, we've gone in, we, the greater we, the people who do the surveys, the Wahoo Invasive Species Committee and the Hawaii Ant Lab, um, they go in, they survey, uh, they find where the ants are find the edge of their population, because of course we want to be able to treat the entire population. So the number of sites that are, have been surveyed and that are actively being treated for ants is just a little over 36 right now. So creeping up there, we've had a number of new detections this year where we haven't found the edge of the population. So that's, that's concerning. We have very few staff on this island to be able to actually go out and do this work. So I recall doing a story a few years ago when uh, John Morgan at Kualoa Ranch said, oh gosh, we got some in, we had some natives we brought over from the big island, and guess what? They hitchhiked. You know, and he, he said they, they weren't near, near an area you know, that was frequented by visitors, but you know, it was a large area, and then there's a buffer zone, and so how do you you know, tackle that. And and it's encouraging to hear that Maui's making progress. So, you know, are there things that as we learn about how you can eradicate or beat back the populations, you know, can we use them here? Yeah. You know, shout out to John Morgan. You know, when he heard about it, he absolutely stepped up and tasked his staff with learning how to control these ants. And um, and they've been really good. So they are still battling their infestation. It is in a much smaller footprint right now. They are using the methods that were developed by the Hawaii Ant Lab. You know, our, our Department of Agriculture and Department of Land and Natural Resources didn't have any ant expertise. That's not something that's all that common. Uh, and these ants are really unique. Nowhere in the world are they trying to control or eradicate ants that nest in trees. Everybody's so used to thinking about ant nests being in the ground. So at Kuloa, they are following the program. I have to say there's other large property owners that are absolutely not. And so that is a challenge. How do you compel that to happen? For the smaller properties, we have enough staff, or we had until recently, to go out and actually do the treatments for the community. Right? Because, you know, tutu, auntie, you know, uncle, they're... Uh, it can't do it regularly. They can't do the type of work that we're asking. So really, this is a service to the community that they're providing. So the treatment sort of depends on how large the infestation is and what the capacity is of the people there. Well, I remember doing stories about how, okay, there were some landscapers, let's say in Kahala, where they were getting stung as they were doing, you know, their, their work for some of these large estates. You know, you, you were hearing things about, okay, Lanikai, right? So folks that are maybe bringing in uh, major landscape projects, right, are, are finding out, oh, guess what? They hitchhiked in. And then you have areas, you know, and I, I just was looking uh, recently on the windward side, right? Kaneohe, Waihole Waikane, you know, and so that's not good because these ants like wet spots. They look for water. They do prefer moist areas, but anybody who has a yard that they water even occasionally um, is at risk. So all you folks out in Eva thinking you're safe, you're not, you know, shout out to my peeps in Nanakuli, you're not safe either, sorry. So everybody needs to be aware that this is a situation. And if you have any questions, you can very likely reach out to your family, your friends on Hawaii Island, who unfortunately are stuck with this ant. They have had to deal with it. And I guarantee you can find people that can tell you that we don't want these 
and we need to do everything we can to get rid of them. There are tools out there to figure out if you can detect them, and it's peanut butter on a chopstick. It's something simple like that. Yeah, I think the public's role in this is pretty clear and straightforward. You know, anytime you get new plant materials or anything that you import from an infested area, even if it's old couch from your auntie's property in Pune, whatever it is, put some ant bait on that. And and what I mean by that is put out a chopstick with some, you know, either peanut butter or real mayonnaise because it contains, you know, the fats and the sugars and the proteins that they like. So it just draws the ants out of hiding. And that way you can see if there's ants there. Then you put them in a zip top bag, freeze it and send it in for identification. Um, so anytime you move things, that's one. But also we ask everybody during Stop the Ant Month, you know, here we are, October is a very spooky month. Be scared. Go out and collect ants in your yard and submit them uh, because you may not have little fire ants, but your neighbor might have them and they may be coming over into your yard foraging for food and you may be able to detect them early. What more needs to be done? Because, you know, I go back to the distress of realizing that the first ones were detected 24 years ago. And gosh, is there more we could be doing? The public should know, everybody should be aware that when you go and buy something from a nursery or, or, or wherever, they are not required to tell you that there's little fire ants in them. They're not required to treat for them. They're not required to make sure that they're selling you clean items. And honestly, some of them are not selling you clean items. So one of the things that people need to do is be aware of that and take proactive measures, yes. Um, but the other is is honestly a regulatory fix in that if the agencies don't have the, um, the rules that they need to be able to quarantine or stop the sale of an infested commodity, for example, a plant at a nursery before it is sold, if they don't have that authority, which they do not now, then we're always going to lose. They also don't have the authority to quarantine that commodity and require treatment so that it can then leave clean. Well, we've often heard from the Department of Ag, oh, well, we want cooperation, you know, but at some point, do you say, well, you need to be punitive. If you do this, you're going to get fined big time. Yeah, you know, I, <laughs> I agree. We need both the carrot and the stick. Um, we don't have any carrots yet other than, you know, being, being the good, responsible business owner. But, you know, 99% of nurseries are trying their darndest. They are bending over backwards to make sure that they provide good products. There are those, though, that are not. And absolutely, we definitely need rules to be able to have another tool in the toolbox to be able to stop the spread. And is there anything, gosh, in all your work with invasive species that I don't know is the most troubling, particularly with this species? When we look at species, um, little fire ants in particular, they I feel a little bit more hope than I normally do because... The treatment methods, we have tools to control it. We know how to do it. <laughs> we just need to be able to do it. So I think some of the things where I, I think we're more deficient in is uh, the funding, the rules, the regulation to be able to back ourselves up and put us in a better position in the future. And honestly, public participation and support. You know, If we do decide that we want to keep 
as much of Hawaii you know, protected as we can for future generations. We're going to need everybody to do it. You know, you can't have that one bad actor harboring infested properties and still have a protected neighborhood. You can't. When you think, you know, uh, this affects our economy too, because, you know, whether it's hikers on a trail, now it's surfers in the surf, swimmers in the ocean that could get stung. It really puts it into sharp focus, I think, for some people. You know, can we do more? Yeah, I I agree. And <laughs> every once in a while, I have these um, grand ideas of, oh, maybe we can send you know some really key people to an infested area. Maybe we can send them to areas that, you know, places in the world where they actually are very proactive and do a good job so that they don't get discouraged, but see that we need to do better and know that there are countries or, or states that are doing better. That was Christy Martin, who's with the Oahu Invasive Species Committee, talking about the active cases where uh, it is treating the little but powerful fire ant. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Ferraro Choi, committed to environmentally sustainable architecture and interior design. Supporting Hawaii Public Radio for more than 25 years, ferrarochoi.com. Next time on The World, Israel has been firing across its northern border into Lebanon, responding to rocket and missile attacks from Hezbollah. The militant group is backed by Iran and is also a major political party in Lebanon. Hezbollah is here to stay. It's going to become more and more part of the Lebanese state identity, whether we like it or not. Understanding Hezbollah next time on The World. Beginning this afternoon at 1. Support for HPR comes from Monkey Pod Kitchen on Oahu in Ko'olina and Maui in Wailea and Ka'anapali. Now hiring multiple front and back of house positions. Application at monkeypodkitchen.com careers. is the conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your backyard quiz. Onihoa, olehua, onihau, okaua, oahu, omolokai, olanai, omau, okaholabe, ohavai. Today we're asking you what you know about female journalists, specifically women who ran newspapers. History shows us that women have often been relegated to the sidelines as readers and interpreters of text, but there are always early pioneers who break gender barriers. 
Hawaii was one of the world's most literate populations by the late 19th century, and it boasted three women who successfully edited and published early Hawaiian and English newspapers. The first was Elizabeth Jarvis, who arrived as a newlywed from Boston in 1839. Her husband, James Jarvis, founded the Polynesian newspaper in 1840. While James traveled the islands and even made trips back to the continent, Elizabeth ran the weekly journal. Emma Aima Navahi of Hilo also started and ran a newspaper. A descendant of a Hawaiian chiefess and a Chinese sugar mill owner, she married legislator and artist Joseph Navahi. Together they started Ke Aloha Aina in 1895, uh, the Hawaiian patriot. Uh, Emma published the bilingual weekly until 1910. Today's backyard quiz question is who is the third noted woman to publish a Hawaii newspaper. Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right scores a HPR reusable tote bag. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nairit Hawaii, which supports nonprofits providing homeless families with access to affordable housing, such as women in need on Kauai. NairitHawaii.com. This week, we've been hearing from Deputy Superintendent for Operations with the Department of Education. Kurt Otogoro was previously with the um, Comptroller's Office with the Department of Accounting Services before joining uh, DOE Superintendent Keith Hayashi's inner circle. We heard about the efforts to get students and teachers back in the classroom in the three Maui schools affected by the wildfires this past week. But we asked him how this disaster and the resources needed to deal with the great need is impacting other key programs underway in the department. Things like the initiative to build more preschool space for our keiki and the tapping of federal funds for things like our school lunch programs. Here's Otoguro. Yeah, the funding is still there under the School Facilities Authority, and we are continuing to support that. Uh, we did get the 11 classrooms out in renovations, and so we have identified another 29 classrooms that we can renovate to be prepared for for that. So now, I think the challenge will be finding the right contractors because the demand for construction is going to be very, very big at some point in the future. Right now, not so much in Lahaina, but uh, yeah, we're, we're, we'll have to face the resource issue of construction down the road. Okay, so do you think that could delay the rollout of that just because, you know, there'll be a lot of emphasis on rebuilding the schools? I, I would hope not. I think we have a good model in place that we've leveraged contracts that we already have in place with a process called job order contracting. And we had contractors pre-selected and ready to go. So I hope not, but that that's to, remains to be seen. Again, we're not in control of the resources or employment of construction. So we'll just have to see how that goes. But for now, I, I don't see us slowing down at all. We just told Lieutenant Governor, we still want to get some classrooms out by the beginning of next year. 
And then on uh, school lunch, I've seen some headlines about we're not sure if we're going to participate in, in, in some of these federal programs. Is there any update you can give on that? Um, we're still evaluating it. The CEP program that you're mentioning, they used to be 40%. Now it's down to 25%. Um, there's obviously, you know, anytime the federal government is providing subsidies, we, we want it. But there's an economic uh, responsibility also. There's a fiscal responsibility. We may actually end up losing some money, more money, if we adopt that program. So we're in that evaluation process as we speak. And so explain Um, to our listeners uh, what that program is exactly and and what that does. It's really a definition of what students would qualify for free or subsidized meals. And so the percentage has decreased from 40% to 25%, which on the surface would sound good. But then that would affect a school's ability to qualify for other programs being in Title I. And so it's it's more complex than just a program by itself because the federal government provides a lot of subsidies in different programs. And so the decision that will be made will be based, of course, on need. Um, but then we have, especially in, in these times going forward, our responsibilities to make sure it's fiscally sound. Uh, that we don't need to ask for the legislature for any more general funds to subsidize this right now. Yeah, otherwise you're you're saying that it could be like a rob Peter to pay Paul kind of thing. I mean, we get help in one area, but we might lose it in some others. That's correct. That's exactly correct. And so we, we haven't made that determination yet, but we, will, we are in the process of analyzing it. And is it the kind of thing where you can say yes or no based on, uh, you know, a district uh, a, a county, you know, per island, or is it the whole department? Yeah, our responsibility will be to bring a program together. It is really the, the uh, at the authority of the individual schools, the principals, to make that determination whether they participate or not. So every school is different. Their, their makeup of student base is different. And so depending on their mix of Title I students or not, or their definition, it'll impact them differently. So, yeah, it'll be a school decision. Okay. And the other thing that I had questions about is, you know, this whole uh, farm to table uh, and, the, and the focus to try and buy local, you know, from our farmers to help ag. Uh, and I know there was some uh, brouhaha over whether, uh, you know, we could apply for certain funds that were available in order to, to, to do that? I mean, is there anything you can talk to about that? I'm not as inclined to speak to that right now, uh, only because, you know, we want to buy local. There's no question. But it's a little more complex than that, and we're trying to find the model where we buy local, but there's food safety involved. And farmers, when, because we're federally subsidized by the USDA, we, we have certain restrictions and rules that have to be followed and adhered to. And so one of them are farmers need to be certified. And so there's a there's not we have 7,000 farmers in Hawaii, uh, but not all of them are majority are not certified. Yes, and I mean, so we, you know, yeah. we, we saw you know when the farm bill you know was passed initially, you know, the the big concern about that and trying to educate our farmers, like this is very important, and if you don't do this, it really limits what you can do with your produce. Yeah, and so I think we, we want to work closer with our partners at the Department of Agriculture to see what we can do to get a program in place to get them certified. And, you know, food hubs are a good interim measure. We've met Superintendent uh, Hayashi and I and 
A few others have met with uh, some of the food hubs here locally, and they may be the solution to that certification process since they would take on the liability and responsibility to ensure that the quality of the product, the produce, or whatever they're getting is of that standard. Yeah, so you that, could, that let's might- say... You could sit, let's say, like roll it out on Oahu's North Shore if you've got a hub there and, and all those farmers are certified. So so maybe that could happen in some areas versus others in a faster clip. Yeah, eventually what we want to do is regionalize our menus. Right now, we set a menu statewide and, and that's fine. That's good. It's efficient. But it may not be what the, the students want to eat. You know, every culture is different. Every island is different. And so the department's goal is to find a, a model where we can set regional menus and buy from the, the region. That's the ultimate goal. Um, now, uh, islands produce different things, and so we, we, and there's transport to make sure that we, the end result is that the meals that we serve meet the USDA nutrition guidelines. Yeah, so that's a, a real challenge then for you. And that is, that is. That, and that's the reason why the department may appear more bureaucratic or less flexible because there are very stringent rules um, that need to be complied with. And we do get audited by the USDA. So when do you see some resolution to that? It's work in progress. I know that every session we've dealt with this, Randy Tanaka is heavily involved, a good traction with legislators uh, trying to build the relationship with the farm bureau and others. So it's just work in progress to continue this. Okay. All right. Any other deadline that you see coming up pretty quick? Well, this is, this is almost the end of October already. Yeah, right now we're, we're in the process of our supplemental budget. So that's, that's before us, and we're working with our budget finance to submit a, a budget that would be palatable for student needs, but mm-hmm. also taking into account the state's fiscal challenges ahead of us. It's never enough, right? It's yeah. never enough. And, you know, especially now in academic times, we've got to find a way that we can take care of the kids. We, we do. We, we just need to. But it's a big ask, right? The Department of Education is probably 20, 22%, depending on the year of this entire state's budget, general fund. So yeah. it, we're, we're a big part of it. So uh, to ask for more is always difficult when there's so many other needs. Right, right. Yeah, and we still have the backlog, right? Air yeah. conditioners, fans, that kind of thing. Lots of moving parts. Lots of moving parts. Yeah. The buildings are not getting any newer. Right. <laughs> They're getting older. So more things are, are breaking down. Um, well, well, thank you so much. I, I really appreciate you carving out time for us and doing this on no. the fly. <laughs> no, thank, thank you for doing this, Catherine. Uh, you know, anything we can do to, to appease and give confidence to our parents, that, that really helps. Happy to have you on you know, anytime. Happy to have the soup on you know, more often. Yep. Happy to do that for sure. Thank you. That was Kurt Otaguro, Deputy Superintendent for Operations in our public schools, talking about the construction of temporary schools in Maui, as well as a discussion about meals and food hubs and how federal programs can affect our bottom line. Civil Beats Reality Check looks at the show of support by mayors to reopen tourism in West Maui next month. Uh, Political editor Chad Blair is here to give us an update. Hi, Chad. 
Good morning, Catherine. Yeah, so this is a story uh, by uh, Paula, Paula Dobbin, who was there yesterday. Right, and she's still there on Maui reporting on the ground uh, on the Lahaina fires and related issues, and I'm glad to fill in for her today. You know, you think back to it, it was just a couple of weeks ago that Governor Green decided to stick with his plan to reopen uh, Maui, or West Maui specifically, but not Lahaina uh, on October the 8th. But there was a lot of hostility in some quarters. Remember, there were, I think there was a petition with something like 14,000 signatures delivered to the governor's office saying, don't do this, it's, it's too soon. Even some of the area uh, politicians, elected officials were also concerned, but the governor decided to stick with that October the 8th. What happened yesterday was sort of a clarification uh, on where we are now. So Richard Bisson, the mayor of Maui County, did make this announcement saying that beginning November 1st, which is just next week, I think it's next Wednesday, all of, of Maui is open to tourists as well as others, people that live uh, in Hawaii, except Lahaina. Uh, the mayor made that announcement at the Lahaina Civic Center uh, just yesterday afternoon. Yeah, and it was interesting, though, to see the show of support from the other mayors. They all came over, and I guess it was probably good for them to see for themselves the destruction because, you know, I'm sure they don't want to see a repeat in any of their counties. Oh, sure. Remember, you know, on the Big Island where Mitch Roth is, is mayor, they, they, had, uh, they had fires uh, in, in, up in the, the northern area of the island. Uh, mayor Rick Blangiardi here from Oahu. We've got our share of very dry areas that are vulnerable, particularly in a drought condition. And, of course, Mayor uh, Derry Kamakami from Kauai, which even though they got some rain the other day, every island is vulnerable, particularly during this dry season. And I think all four mayors, it's fair to say, realized that that could be anybody. And so it was uh, sort of an impressive show of support to have not only uh, the three mayors joining uh, Rick Bisson, but also I believe Sylvia Luke, the lieutenant governor, was there as well. Yes. And, you know, we, we've got, you know, the schools, uh, you know, back in session, you know, uh, the um, folks that stay in timeshares, you know, they've started to come back. But it's been slow. It's not like we've had this huge onslaught of visitors drop right. down in and, Maui. And, and part of this, I think, Biston's uh, mission yesterday was to clear up some of the confusion. Even with that October 8th reopening, there was a planned phased reopening of West Maui. It was going to come in three phases. And the idea was is that county officials would assess how those phases went. How did it go? Uh, were residents able to return to work, those that wanted to go back to work? Could people find child care? Could they get their kids back in school? And you mentioned schools, and Kurt was just on, of course. Since then, three of Lahaina schools uh, have now reopened. There's a fourth one also planned temporarily uh, for Kapalua. So that cleared some things up. There's also some questions cleared up in terms of temporary housing. Remember about, at least as of last week, the, the figures were 6,800 people still displaced from the fires. They're in 35 hotels. And of course, that's a factor. You can't open all of West Maui uh, if there's not, in fact, the room to house them, but it turns out a number of local residents were hearing some hotels were, were already booking, but to your point, it is soft. Booking is very soft to West Maui. It's going to take a long time. I think the Hawaii Tourism Authority has actually launched a campaign to get the word out there. Yes, it's open, but let's be respectful uh, uh, when you arrive in West Maui. Yeah, but we have seen how, you know, the hotel of room tax that yep. the counties collect really well, it's really needed to kind of balance their county budgets. Yeah, and it just was reported not long ago. I think it's like a $31 million hole in the current 
Maui County budget, which is about a, a, a billion dollars, if I remember correctly, I'm gonna cut my figures right on that one. Uh, and so that's, that's a hit, and uh, that doesn't include the most recent revenue projections. So remember, it's the hotel tax, it's the general excise tax. If you don't have people coming to Maui on a regular basis, you're not gonna have that revenue. And that's not just gonna hurt Maui County, that's gonna hurt the rest of the state as well. At least one business person that Paula talked to said, we're glad that we're trying to clear up the confusion to send out the message that we're open, that we want you to return. Again, with some restrictions, stay away from Lahaina. Yeah, yeah. Well, we'll see how this all plays out. But thank you so much, Chad. Thanks, Catherine. All right. That was political editor Chad Blair with today's Reality Check. You can read Paula's story online at civilbeat.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company since 2005, featuring a locally based customer care team committed to problem solving and personal service for each client. Learn more at Mobi.com. Hey there, it's Michael Barbaro, host of The Daily. Join us for an in-depth look into the world's biggest stories. Catch The Daily Monday through Thursday at 1.30 here on HPR One. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Board of Water Supply, Ohana, working to protect watersheds and aquifers since 1929, for fresh water now and for future generations. Learn more at protectoahuwater.org. Mark's World Polio Day, a day when we stop to reflect on the disease that robs so many of the use of their limbs. During the pandemic, we heard from Big Island resident Bobby Camaro, who lost the use of one of his arms and who used to tell anti-vaxxers why it was important to get vaccinated against diseases like COVID and polio. He was recently diagnosed with post-polio syndrome, a condition marked by muscle loss and other disabling symptoms. When we last talked, he was coming to grips with the reality of losing use of more than just his arm. Today, he remains active in the community, but he can no longer walk. He contracted polio just before his fourth birthday, and he is now 72 and living in KL. He talked to us this morning. When someone has polio, the virus attacks places on your spinal cord where nerve impulses power different muscles, to put it really simply. And after one recovers, some muscles often are left paralyzed, either fully or partially. And as you live your life, other muscles compensate for the ones that are 
fully or partially paralyzed. And after decades, the compensating muscles apparently say, we're done, we're not going to do this anymore, and we're going to stop working. And at that point is when post-polio begins. It's not a reinfection of the virus. It's, I guess, neurological problem. And the decline when you have post-polio takes on a series of, of various curves. It can be very steep and fast. It can be slow and gentle. It can go down in steps and plateau, all, all kinds of downward motion. But once you start going down, you can never go back up again. When we last talked, you, you know, had difficulty with your arm. You know, when we were going through the yeah, pandemic, yeah. you had talked about, you know, the need for a vaccine against COVID because you dealt with that, you know, with polio. I was diagnosed on May 1st, 1955, which is a little less than a month after the vaccine was released on the East Coast. But my family's from Honoka on the island of Hawaii. And so, you know, the East Coast release didn't do anything for small town people in Hawaii. And so you've been dealing with this disease all your life. Well, yeah. I mean, I had, you know, the initial disease, I guess, left me with a paralyzed left arm and miscellaneous muscles paralyzed or partially paralyzed pretty much all over my body, including my right quadricep muscle in my right foot that I don't know the name of, my pet, my tricep, but I functioned. I mean, I, I figured out, or my body, I guess, figured out how to walk, how to you know do everything. And so I spent a lot of time backpacking and hiking when I was in my 30s, 40s, and 50s. And then your body starts breaking down because you're getting older and nobody wants to admit that. But about 10 years ago, I guess, maybe 15 years ago, I noticed my right foot was getting weaker. And I ended up wearing a brace to compensate for that. And everything was good for 10 or 12 years. And then a year ago, I fell in my house on September 21st. And that started a cast of many symptoms, pain, um, weakness, more pain, more weakness. And by late December, early January last year, I could no longer walk. And so it happened really quickly. And, you know, I had to come to terms with not being able to walk. And that was really, really tough for somebody who is, you know, super active up until a year ago. Retired from Hawaii Volcanoes National Park, and right after I retired, I started walking two miles a day and did that for, oh God, 10 years, I guess. And I did the math, and I think I walked 6,000 miles in 10 years. Well, with this post-polio, when I contacted you not too long ago, you had shared with me that, yes, you were bedridden, uh, and you had just received a gift of a, an electric wheelchair. So yeah, how's that working yeah. out for you? It's a challenge. You know, you got to learn how to deal with little wheels that move independently. But generally speaking, it's worked out really, really well. I also have a van that I can, you know, get into with a ramp and friends, various friends, you know, come and pick me up and drive me around. 
And, you know, we've been to lunch in Hilo and up the volcano and on various paved trails up there to go see what's been happening with the various eruptions. So one has to, well, one doesn't have to do anything. In my case, I choose to, I guess, adapt, not perfectly, but it's just, I guess, the, the way my my brain works. It's like, you know, I've got to deal with it and move on. That's kind of been my mantra. With polio, you know, there were lots of, you know, support groups for those who contracted the virus. Yeah. But what is there out there for post-polio patients? Well, you know, you wander around online, and Hawaii has relatively few people that had polio, or maybe more accurately, relatively few people with significant residual paralysis or weakness. So the support groups are not really there as far as I've found in Hawaii. It's really, really impossible to buy a wheelchair here. You know, there's no showroom that you can go to and try them out. Not like buying a car. Your electric wheelchair was donated. Right. I mean, I, I accepted the donation because I needed one and I'm grateful, but I didn't get to test drive it first. Okay. And so you're, you're still trying to uh, figure it out. Um, yeah. And, and then what about clinical trials? I don't know. I mean, post-polio, everybody that I know says once you start declining, there's really nothing to do. There's no medicine. There's no drug. There's no exercise. I do go to physical therapy once a week, and that's mostly to maintain the strength that I have left in my legs. My legs are not totally paralyzed, but they're weak enough that I cannot stand up by myself and I can't walk. Standing is really, really challenging. I need like two very strong people helping me to stand. And otherwise, you know, I'm in my bed rolling from one side to the other. So there's there's no drugs, there's no therapies, you know, stem cell or whatever. So you've had to just come to terms with this is just this next stage and, and you're having to deal with it as best you can. Exactly. And, you know, I'm lucky, I think, because my mind is still active and keen and I've got a great wide support network of friends and family. I still, quote unquote, work, even though I'm not getting paid, but I still do research. I write, I you know, make contributions to to the community, not in money, but in thinking and talking and, and research. You're engaged. So, yeah, I'm engaged, exactly. And, it, and you know, it's, it's, it feels good. You know, the, the big hazard right now is that I can't really move that much, and I really enjoy eating. <laughs> and, and, and so, you know, I got to be really, really careful because I, I, all I got to do is look down now and I can see my, my old pool growing. <laughs> and then I, then I cut back for a while. Well, you know, as we pause and think about World Polio Day, I don't know, is there anything you want to share with our listeners about your situation and your hope? The main thing is, you know, polio has been nearly eradicated, not entirely. It, it still lurks in various corners of, of the world. And some people have a really cavalier attitude about vaccines. It's like, oh, no, we don't need that. Or, you know, they've been, been told by people, you don't need that. It's not going to work. It's poison. It's whatever. If people are consciously making a decision 
you know, like I said last year when we talked, not to get the vaccine, and they are informed through whatever media they pay attention to. I guess, you know, that's okay. But, you know, don't ever come back and complain if you do get sick. You're a big advocate for vaccines. If you can get it and it can protect you, go. Yeah. Okay. Go get it. Go get it. So, you know, we do what we can. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm not alone in this. There's lots of other people with many other physical ailments, some way worse than mine. And it's all about attitude. Mm -hmm. You know, we're going to do what we can. And, you know, we hope that people around us and those that we run across when we're outside have some degree of compassion and patience and, you know, just just be kind to one another. Well, Bobby, thank you so much. I appreciate you sharing your story because I think it just helps raise our consciousness, you know, about what's out there and what we don't know because there's still a lot we don't know. Thank Um, you, Catherine. All right. I really appreciate your interest. Aloha. All right. You take care. That was Big Island resident Bobby Camaro talking to us about his long battle with polio starting as a young child and now with post-polio in his golden years. Now to the backyard quiz. Answer fresh off the presses. With one of the highest literacy rates by the end of the 19th century in a lively journalistic culture, Hawaii was clearly a place of ideas and intellect. An engaged, inclusive citizenry, citizenry meant that three women were able to successfully publish and edit early Hawaiian and English newspapers. The first was newlywed Elizabeth Jarvis, who arrived from Boston in 1839. Her husband, James Jarvis, founded the Polynesian newspaper in 1840. Emma uh, Aima Navahi and her husband, Joseph Navahi of Hilo, launched Ke Aloha Aina, the Hawaii Patriot, in 1895. Joseph died the following year in San Francisco, and Emma carried forward the bilingual weekly until 1910. The no- third noted female publisher, and the answer to today's quiz, is Teresa Owana Kaohelelane. She was the most flamboyant of the three women. Her first marriage to Alexander Cartwright, father of the American baseball, ended in divorce. But together with her second husband, Robert W. Wilcox, they published several papers. And while he served as a delegate to the U.S. Congress from 1901 to 1903, Mrs. Wilcox ran Home Rula Republica, the journal backed by former royalists. And we had no winners. No one guessed that one today. But that's to qu- today's quiz. If you have an idea for one, send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. If you're a longtime HPR listener, you're probably familiar with StoryCorps, the nonprofit that shares touching stories during morning edition and weekend edition. StoryCorps was in Hawaii last year as part of its Military Voices initiative. The StoryCorps team collected local stories from across the islands, and we're featuring some of them over the next few weeks as we approach Veterans Day. Today, HPR host John Zach features one with Hawaii U.S. Congressman Ed Case. Mm-hmm. 
This is StoryCorps, the Military Voices Initiative. For many years, Hawaii Congressman Ed Case has been a staunch advocate for veterans. In this episode, he asks his friend Alan Ho about his experiences in the Army as a medical officer. Originally, Ho began his service stateside. He requested and received a transfer to Vietnam. It began to weigh on me that here I was, trained as a combat medic, not really being able to fulfill my my training obligations as a combat medic. And so I volunteered to go to Vietnam. I thought that my time would be best served as a soldier in combat. And yeah, I, I volunteered to go to Vietnam and I wound up with the uh, infantry brigade in the northern sector of Vietnam, which was called I-Corps. And I served with the 196 Light Infantry Brigade. Being a young kid from Hawaii, being uh, familiar with and accepting my role and my contributions to my society as a soldier, it meant being in combat, if you will. When you went into the Army, I was 14 years old on Hawaii Island. Vietnam was a long way away. There was no connection to my everyday life until one day, brother of uh, one of my classmates um, died in Vietnam. I, I guess my question is, has your life really been that defined by your Vietnam experience? I mean, did, did that really demarcate the boundaries of your life? And does it make you feel different in some way? For me, my service in combat, my service in Vietnam probably is the singular most event or experience that I had that put me on a path to where I am today. I've tried to live my life in accordance with all of the kind of important things that I was raised with. But one of the things that has uh, totally affected my life was my experience in combat, especially with the young men whom I served with in combat, those of us who survived and those who served with me who did not. And over the years, I've maintained that connection with the young men that survived. And I have also established and made very deep connections with the families of the young men who did not come home. Alan Ho's two sons followed their dad into military service. Nakoa, a staff sergeant, has served for more than 20 years. Nainoa, tragically, was lost in combat in the Iraq War. The most kind of tragic or difficult emotions that I had to go through was the day that we learned that Nainoa had been killed in combat. For me, it was like, whoa, that was a shocking reality that I just never anticipated. His luck would run out. But over the years, it has become dramatically or more clear to me that surviving combat is truly just a matter of pure luck. You can be the most highly skilled, the most highly trained, have all the resources behind you, but if Lady Luck is not on your side, then that's going to be a consequence of war. StoryCorps' Military Voices Initiative is produced in collaboration with Hawaii Public Radio. I'm your host and producer, John Zack. Local support for StoryCorps, the Military Voices Initiative, comes from Hawaii Pacific University with military campus programs for service members and their families on base, on campus, and online, hpu.edu military. that's a wrap. Tomorrow we hear from Kauai Invasive Species Committee to see how the Garden Isle is faring in the battle against the destructive little fire ants. 
Have you found fire ants in your yard? Share your comments or questions. Call our talkback line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You can also find the conversation segments on our website and on most platform uh, for wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.